This episode of Post Reports Podcast is brought to you by Facebook. At Facebook, we've taken critical steps to prepare for the U.S. elections. We've more than tripled our safety and security teams, implemented five-step ad verification, and launched a new voting information center. Learn more at facebook.com slash about slash elections. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Washington Post, this is Colby. Yeah, yeah. Hi, it's Stephanie McCrumman from the Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, September 23rd. Today, what Democrats are thinking on Capitol Hill, justice over Zoom, and why you can't actually vote twice. The reality is in the Senate right now, it takes just a simple majority to advance any presidential nominee. Paul Kane is the senior congressional correspondent for The Post. Whether it is to some random commission overseeing the Great Lakes or the Supreme Court of the United States of America. And that has left the minority party with very few options The reality is that there's not a whole lot they can do. And what are some of these theories that we have heard of that Democrats could do or that people think that Democrats could do right now? Oh, there's this thought of if you impeached someone, anyone, Bill Barr or impeached Trump again and sent that resolution across the Capitol, that it would instantly stop all other action and force them to hold an impeachment trial. You know, I got an email from a reader asking about they could just deny unanimous consent. Hmm. Blocking unanimous consent is something that blocks the action from taking place. And basically would make the voting process go much more slowly. Yeah, but there are provisions already in line for how to deal with those things. You file something called a cloture motion. That's the that's the way you block a filibuster, defeat a filibuster. And yes, it'll take three days to overcome that process. But think of it this way. If there really were a way for this minority party to block this Supreme Court nominee, then Mitch McConnell would have thought of it (laughs) in the eight years that he served as minority leader and was considered the obstructionist in chief. He was considered the greatest obstructor in the history of the Senate, blocking Barack Obama in every possible way. If there were ways for to, to block the Supreme Court nominations of Sonia Sotomayor and Elena Kagan from the minority position, McConnell would have done it, but he couldn't do it. And then I've heard these ideas that potentially if Democrats were to win control of the Senate in November and if there were to be a Democratic president, that there's this idea you could pack the court afterward. You could just change the number of justices that there are on the Supreme Court and increase them so you could have two more Democrat-appointed justices or you could have four more. Well, that is a that, that is something that can legitimately be done in the legislative process. There was no foundation in the Constitution that set the number of Supreme Court justices at nine. It started with six justices, the chief and five associate justices, and it grew over the years. And, you know, to be sure, you know, the considered the greatest Democratic president of all, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, tried in the 1930s to pack the court in a very infamous way and eventually was shot down. And the reality is if Democrats were to go through 
the couple year process of adding justices to the Supreme Court, that would immediately be met in return with Republicans next time they have the power. And, you know, we just would go back and forth by (laughs) in 20 years, we might have 21 justices. And, And you'd also probably need support from actual Democratic leadership. And this seems like something that congressional leadership isn't that interested in. And it's something that Joe Biden has said that he straight up doesn't think should happen. Yeah, Biden had got a little bit cagey the other night when he was asked about it in a local interview. I think it was in Wisconsin. And he basically said that he didn't want to answer the question because if he answers the question, then that's going to change the discussion. And what Democrats are trying to do right now is to avoid these These are process fights. I know that there is a bigger, bigger goal at hand here in terms of overall policy and how that policy is reviewed at the Supreme Court. But most of the public tunes this stuff out because they they hear things about, oh, Republicans are being hypocrites. And well, like 89% or more of the public says, yeah, they're all hypocrites, no big deal. Mm. And they really want to try and focus this fight politically on what the impact of trading in Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the most iconic liberal justice of the last 25 years, for a very staunch conservative jurist like Amy Coney Barrett. Like that is the biggest ideological jump that the court would have seen since Thurgood Marshall was replaced by Clarence Thomas. They want to make this fight politically, not about these seemingly random efforts to put more justices on the Supreme Court. And they want this fight to be about the impact on the Affordable Care Act, on voting rights, on clean air, clean water. But then with all that in mind, like what is the actual plan? Are they just basically giving up and saying, look, this is the reality that there will be a justice appointed by President Trump who will be extremely conservative? Or or do they have a plan for how to come out of this? Um, It's kind of depressing among Senate Democratic ranks. You know, when you talk to them, I, I spoke to Senator Michael Bennett Monday night. Are you worried about not being able to do anything from inside this building in terms of blocking the nomination? Well, I think we're in a situation where Mitch McConnell is the only person in this building that can decide when and whether and how to move the nomination forward. You know, my hope is that there'll be enough Republicans to stop it, but I don't think the likelihood of that is very high. And he basically was pretty downbeat. He wants this to be a big fight and they're going to try and defeat this nominee. But to do so, it's going to take something really unusual. They're going to have to find something about the nominee's background that was previously unknown. It's very unlikely that they'll be able to find something new. But what I'm wondering is, you know, the Senate seems like a legislative body that is kind of obsessed with precedent and tradition and that there is a sort of more respectful, more dignified way that things are supposed to work there. And of course, I don't think that has actually been the case for the Senate for quite a while. But I do wonder if this is 
somewhat of a turning point in terms of the future of this body and this idea that there could ever be any form of compromise between Democrats and Republicans ever again. Yeah, certainly on the Supreme Court and judicial nominations, it has become this important of a clash because Congress itself has failed as an institution on so many issues. Hmm. From Mitch McConnell to Elizabeth Warren, you see in a Senate today people who no longer believe that legislation is really even possible out of the Senate Hmm. and that the executive branch through rulemaking, regulation and such is where all the, the real power lies. And it then means that gets litigated because the losing side, when Obama was the one who famously said, I have a I have a phone and a pen, and basically he started using his pen in his second term mm. for executive actions, and which led to Republicans filing lawsuits that went to the federal courts. Now you have Democrats and Democratic state attorney generals filing lawsuits going to the federal courts, mm-hmm. that it all turns into a game of who can control the federal courts so that your side can win on the executive actions taken by whoever is president. And it's all part of this failure of Congress to do anything. Even before Ruth Ginsburg passed away on Friday night, Mitch McConnell was using this month to do nothing but confirm federal judges. That's how much he views the importance of this issue. Well, it seems like what McConnell is doing now in prioritizing trying to get a potential new justice confirmed, that really speaks to the fact that he is, frankly, obsessed with appointing conservative judges and justices, but also to the exclusion of other things that he arguably should be paying attention to. I think specifically thinking about coronavirus aid. So so what is this confirmation process going to do to the other things that could have potentially been hashed out in the Senate in this last month before the election? Yeah. You know, a lot of people going back to, say, May and June assumed that there would be so much political pressure to keep the federal rescue relief spigots flowing with money to help with both the economic and health crises caused by the pandemic. And instead, there was some conservative uprising in McConnell's GOP Senate caucus, you know, people who just didn't want to spend more money. And if there's a a split in his caucus, McConnell's posture is simply to just not bring something up. That meant that just this whole idea of a relief package got thrown on the back burner. You know, there's got to be some bill that is proposed by one of his endangered incumbents, whether it's Tom Tillis or Susan Collins or whoever, that would, even if it doesn't have a chance of getting in law, you could put it on the Senate floor and do something that might help his endangered incumbents, give them a couple days of chance to go home and say, look, we're debating my bill. Nah, he doesn't bother. He's not doing that. Uh-uh. He does not care. He cares about appointing federal judges. These were district court judges that were getting confirmed this month. They're not even that powerful, but McConnell doesn't care. He sees the courts as the final arbiter, uh, the real arbiter of legislation and executive actions. 
So that's all he really cares about. And it's to the detriment of his own incumbents who are facing tough reelect. That they will have to pay for the fact that yeah. this is the priority rather than yeah. helping Americans through COVID. Yeah. And they're in Cory Gardner in Colorado. Susan Collins in Maine are in states where Donald Trump is just not going to win and he's going to lose by a decent margin. And this only further polarizes that electorate and it makes their races that much harder to win. So in some ways, it seems like McConnell is almost making a trade-off here that he would prefer to risk control of the Senate if it means getting one more conservative justice on the court. Yeah. Look, he believes that this will help a handful of his incumbents who are up in states that Trump won by, you know, a few percentage points or more. A place like Montana, where Trump won by double digits and the Democratic governor, Steve Bullock, is running against the uh, incumbent, Steve Daines. He believes this is going to be one of those moments that turns a race like that into a very polarized, they call it a jersey race, small J, jersey. So it's red shirts versus blue shirts. This is a high stakes play. And yes, if the choice was get this lifetime appointment to the Supreme Court or not get this appointment and retain the majority, McConnell will choose the court every time. Paul Kane is the senior congressional correspondent for The Post. On Wednesday, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg was brought to the Supreme Court, where dozens of her former law clerks lined the marble steps of the court to escort the casket. In a private ceremony inside the Great Hall, Chief Justice John Roberts spoke about her as a rock star whose work moved the nation closer to equal justice under the law. I mentioned at the outset that Ruth's passing weighed most heavily on her family, and that is true. But the court was her family, too. This building was her home, too. Ruth is gone, and we grieve. On Friday, Ginsburg will lie in state at the U.S. Capitol, the first woman and the first Jewish person to be given that honor. My name is Justin Juvenile. I'm a justice reporter for The Washington Post, and I sat in on what we think is probably the nation's first criminal jury trial that was done virtually. It was staged over a Zoom call out of a court in Texas, a misdemeanor court, where a defendant was accused of speeding in a construction zone. Because this format was totally brand new and hadn't been used for a criminal jury trial, the judge in the case wanted to start with a low-stakes case. There's no jail time on the table for the woman. It kind of looks like the Brady Bunch opening credits. There's tiles of video feeds across the screen. The judge, the prosecutor, the defendant, and all... Seven jurors in this case had video feeds going at the same time, and the judge could ask questions to uh, the attorneys, and the attorneys could question witnesses who dialed in when it was the appropriate time for them to give their testimony. There was definitely some of that awkwardness uh, throughout the call. There was your typical problems that 
people would probably be familiar with with Zoom, like audio freezing, video freezing. Uh, in fact, at the very outset of the trial, just a couple minutes in, one of the jurors' video feeds froze as the judge was giving instructions, and it, it brought the whole trial to a halt. The judge and his staff tried for a number of minutes to to get the juror's video feed fixed. Ultimately, they couldn't get it fixed, and the juror had to be dismissed from the jury because of that technical glitch. And he was one of five jurors who had to be dismissed either during the trial or during jury selection for technical issues. There were interesting little moments as well. One of the jurors uh, was at home, and she had a cat. And during the call, the cat was in the background tearing up her couch as she was trying to listen to instructions from the judge and listen to people who were testifying in the trial. So it's a brave new world for, for the justice system. Even before the pandemic, proceedings like immigration and bail hearings were occasionally conducted over video. But that shift has accelerated in the past six months. During the pandemic, more and more courts have embraced doing things virtually by Zoom. We've seen courts across the country use Zoom for sentencing hearings, motion hearings, and all different types of proceedings that before the pandemic period were not done online. Texas is a good example. Since March, the courts have held more than 700,000 hours of virtual hearings for sentencings and motions and other things. They've actually been able to keep up with the vast majority of their trials, unlike some places where because um, proceedings have been shut down during the pandemic, there's now a big backlog of cases. They've been able to keep up with their trials. They report also that their judges have been more efficient. In Texas, judges have to travel sometimes hours to preside over hearings in different courts across the state. Now the judges can just log on from home and jump right into a trial and it cuts down on on travel time. They say also it's actually improved justice in the sense that more defendants are showing up for hearings. A lot of people who might have been skipping out on hearings like landlord eviction hearings are now they're showing up because all they have to do is log on from home. So it's actually shown some benefits. But things get a lot more complicated when it comes to jury trials. And up until now, pretty much every court in the country has seen those types of trials paused by the coronavirus. Courts had a really difficult challenge. Many state courts operate in very tiny courthouses with little room. And the jury trial itself is just not something that lends itself to social distancing. So you have 12 strangers sitting together in a small room for hours on end, making decisions and interacting with other people. It's inherently not something that's safe during the pandemic. Court officials have been racking their brains to try to figure out how to do this. And in most places, they haven't really come up with a good answer yet. Of course, many Americans have had to adapt to doing things over video that were previously unimaginable. But the court system has been slower to make that switch because of legitimate concerns about the implications. In the terms of uh, criminal cases, there's been a lot of concerns raised by judges, defense attorneys, and public defenders about whether defendants can actually get a fair trial via Zoom or via other video conferencing systems. And the reason is uh, they worry about a number of different factors. One is jury selection. 
you need technology, you need to have internet access to get on to Zoom. And as Pew has reported, only there's roughly 25% of the country that doesn't have access to the internet. So is the jury really going to represent a true cross-section of the community if 25% of the community doesn't have the means to you know, access what's needed to get on a jury trial? Another concern for defense attorneys is they need to regularly confer with the defendants. And if this is a Zoom trial, how are they going to have private time to confer with their defendants? How are they going to be able to do that without other people listening in? Another concern is witnesses' testimony. One of the the big ways that people judge the credibility of witnesses is seeing their body language and seeing their face up close to see if they think someone is lying or perhaps hiding something or or they're trustworthy. And on Zoom, when you're looking at someone's face in a small little tile, it's it's hard to read their face. It's hard to read their body language. You also can't see large parts of their body. So you, you don't have that kind of information that you would have in a physical courtroom to to judge witnesses. And virtual courtrooms still have to contend with the technical barriers that many of us are very familiar with. For this Texas trial, they uh, went through a number of dry runs to test the software, and they had to come up with technological solutions for very basic aspects of the trial, like how do you share evidence with the jury? They had to come up with ways for the defense to confer with their clients. So they set up these virtual breakout rooms in Zoom to uh, allow the defense to, to confer with their client. Another major complication to running a jury trial over Zoom is just distracted jurors. When I interviewed the judge on the case uh, before the trial, he told me that that was his main concern with the trial. And at the outset, he was very clear to point out to jurors that they should have their telephones turned off, cell phones turned off. They should not be logged on to social media. They should be in a room in their house where there was no distractions, no kids, no TV. He told them specifically to turn the TV off. And then soon after that, as they were doing jury selection, he had to chastise one of the jurors, potential jurors, who was actually looking at another screen while the attorneys were asking potential jurors questions. Uh, And then there's also security issues. Probably a lot of people are familiar with Zoom bombing, where someone gets onto a Zoom call and does some kind of trolling on the Zoom call. People are worried about that uh, for jury trials as well. So there's a a lot of concerns that people have with, with staging these things online. So there are all these barriers to setting up an equitable virtual courtroom. But there's also an understanding that the coronavirus is still raging across the country. And those competing challenges will continue to put courts in a difficult position. I think we're going to see some low-level cases, uh, like traffic court, as, as this case was in Texas. I doubt we're going to see anything in the more serious realm. I think felonies, you're or murders or first-degree felonies, you're not going to see those kind of proceedings just because there's just too many concerns about carrying out a serious trial at this point using uh, this kind of technology. I think there would have to be a refinement to the technique, and uh, I don't think we're quite at the point where this is ready for prime time for more serious trials. Justin Juvenal covers the courts for The Post. There's always more to the story. I'm Leanne Caldwell, anchor of Washington Post Live. 
Each week, we bring you inside conversations between the newsroom and the people we cover, from global leaders enacting change to cutting-edge artists redefining our culture. And we make you and your questions part of every conversation. Listen to Washington Post Live wherever you get your podcasts and watch on demand at WashingtonPostLive.com. And if you were wondering about the outcome of that virtual trial in Texas, the jury deliberated for about 15 minutes and found the defendant guilty of speeding and sentenced her to pay a fine of $50. This episode of Post Reports podcast is brought to you by Facebook. At Facebook, we've taken critical steps to prepare for the U.S. elections. We've more than tripled our safety and security teams, implemented five-step ad verification, and launched a new voting information center. Learn more at facebook.com slash about slash elections. And now, one more thing. On your uh, ballots, if you get the unsolicited ballots, send it in, and then go make sure it counted. Earlier this month, you may have heard President Trump in North Carolina. He was encouraging people to vote in person after also mailing in a ballot. Send it in early and then go and vote. And it's not that advice left some of us confused, myself included. The way many people understood it, the president was basically telling people, mail in your ballot, then show up in person and try casting another ballot. So one of our listeners, Julio Sheeler, asked, are poll workers capable of invalidating your mail-in ballot? And how do they go about doing so if they don't have the mailed-in ballot right there? Well, here is the short answer. Poll workers may not have that same access to information that voters actually do at home. That's Amber McReynolds. She was a Colorado elections official for 13 years. But now... I'm the CEO of the National Vote at Home Institute and Coalition. Our organization is a national, nonpartisan, nonprofit that's focused on improving the voting experience for every single eligible elector and every single voter across the country. So most states have at least an online platform where you as a voter can go online and confirm that your ballot was received by the election official and accepted. North Carolina is actually one of a few states that has a complete ballot tracking system. So you as a voter can sign up for a text or email and you get messages about the status of your ballot, when it's been mailed, when it's through the postal service, when the election official has received it and verified it. So you get proactive communications just like you would track a package. Uh, there's a few states that do not have this ability online, but just a few. Most states, over 30, I think at this point, have the online lookup. And then a few states, California, Colorado, Virginia, North Carolina, uh, have all implemented statewide ballot tracking and notification systems. There's no reason and no need. And frankly, it will just create longer lines if people start showing up at in-person polling locations to ask these questions when they don't need to do that. The information is available. And Amber offered this reminder. Poll workers may not physically be able to stop you from casting a ballot in person, even if you've already mailed one in. But really, you should not try voting twice. 
Voting twice is illegal. It will get you a felony that will not leave your record. It also might get you jail time along with some pretty significant penalties. So I would strongly encourage voters to utilize their own information, contact their local or state officials if they have questions. But I would rely on that. I would not rely on politicians. You know, we've got to get in a space where we put voters first as opposed to worrying about what the partisan politicians may want in in the process. Amber McReynolds is the CEO of the National Vote at Home Institute and Coalition. And thank you, Julio, for your question. If you have a question about voting this year, there is a great resource on the Washington Post website called How to Vote. You can find specific information for your state, the deadlines, and how to vote by mail or in person. We'll add a link in our show notes and at postreport.com. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. You can learn more about the stories in today's show at postreports.com. And join the conversation online using the hashtag PostReports. I'm Martine Powers. I'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. This episode of Post Reports Podcast is brought to you by Facebook. At Facebook, we've taken critical steps to prepare for the U.S. elections. We've more than tripled our safety and security teams, implemented five-step ad verification, and launched a new voting information center. Learn more at facebook.com slash about slash elections.